Gosh. Isn't Hello. it amazing? And welcome to Modern Medieval, the podcast. I'm Megan. And I'm Edo. And what an amazing new addition to our podcast yeah. world. You guys can't see this, but we were actually just dancing around whilst we were listening to it. <laughs> the jingle was made by a really great friend of mine who is in the PhD program with me. And he's here live with us today. Super exciting. But before we like just jump into that real quick, we are recording on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's. And of course, we know that Valentine's Day is based off of St. Valentine, who was an early Roman martyr. And I didn't know this until I did research that the way that we think of Valentine's Day with the exchange of... um, gifts and and whatnot comes not only from his legend of Mm -hmm. him curing a blind girl and then writing a letter to her saying you're valentine but also jeffrey chaucer and his short story owls oh no i did not know that oh that's cool how that also links to like the romance of saint valentine and everything so just yeah quick shout out to saint valentine happy valentine's day to those who celebrate to those who don't Happy yeah, early day <laughs> and early Valentine's Day to those in the Orthodox Church. They celebrate July sixth. Oh, that's cool. So that there's more to celebrate in July. Like I find winter just a bit boring at the moment. I think also lockdown winter is just a bit much. But yeah, there's more to celebrate in July. Exactly. But I also just kind of wanted to bring up Valentine's Day as a segue into our guest, <laughs> who is a Mr. Joe Burton. Because Valentine's Day, with the gift giving and objects and material nature of it, yeah. I thought was kind of a wonderful, lovely transition. Megan, lovely. I tried. I tried. <laughs> so, welcome, Joe. Welcome. Hello. Very excited to be here. This is, as I was saying to you guys before, this is the first time I've been on a podcast ever. So, oh my god, um, an honor. <laughs> I know. Yeah, very, very interesting times. Um, yeah, it makes. I think. It makes more sense to celebrate Valentine's Day in summer. I think you associate romance with sort of nice temperate weather as opposed to the hard embrace of winter. Doesn't I really... agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apparently some of it, at least from the Chaucer legend, was because they believed at that time that the birds mated in February. Oh. So like with the oh, story, they were finding their partners. And oh. you know, Chaucer just being great in this story, the female... Um, I think they're eagles. It was some sort of bird of prey. Asks Mother Nature to wait a year because none of the males are impressing her and she wants time. And Mother Nature Nature says yes. And so it's like female kind of empowerment, like letting the woman choose to not choose that year. (laughs) Oh, that's quite funny. So I guess to start off, tell us, Joe, who, who are you? Okay, so my name's Joe. <laughs> um, lovely to meet you too. Um, I'm currently studying a PhD at Manchester with Megan. That's how I met you guys. That's how you invited me onto this uh, this podcast. Um, but before that, I did a an undergraduate degree at Salford in Manchester as well. So I've kind of gone full circle um, in visual arts. So I started out making things, and that's how I sort of got my entrance into music. That I used to make uh, musical instruments from scrap metal. 
and do like live performance with them. It was kind of I dystopian, did. Mad Max vibe. That's so cool. Yeah. Well, right, weirdly, my gateway into history actually, because I started writing a fake history, like a pseudo history of the end of the world based around the meat industry. And that's what kind of got me into real history because I was kind of like conflating actual historical events with mm-hmm. a sort of this fake timeline I've written. Um, and yeah so that got me really into sort of specifically sort of Anglo-Saxon stuff but I was was really into that from big fan of Tolkien and stuff like that so that was kind of another gateway and then I saw at York there was a medieval pathway masters which was medieval art and medievalism which kind of covered a broad range of sort of early medieval all the way to kind of later medieval stuff including like architecture and material culture and things like that Um, and then after that um where we are now really the phd which is very it's quite it's very much a continuation of some of the ideas explored in the masters actually so um kind of in a nutshell looking at um basically the sort of philosophical functions of tools and tool use in early medieval um material culture and literature this time which is a a bit of a new venture actually so that is so cool yeah so so cool (laughs) Um, I Joe has been thus far a wonderful um, comrade in the PhD because of the material interests, and he right. actually just recently sent me a piece of uh, deerskin parchment in the mail <laughs> with this wow. like, beautiful Tolkien-esque calligraphy script that he, the ink you said you got for Christmas from your partner. Oh, the medieval recipe! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm glad that didn't get intercepted anywhere. In the <laughs> that would have been a very weird thing to have uncovered. What the hell is going on here? Yeah. Um, so wait, do you, how do you say this? Do you like use collect? Do you know how to write? It's kind of, um, yeah, it's like oh, a, 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 an ink dipping pen right, my partner right. got me for Christmas. But I, even in school, when I was a little kid, I really liked using calligraphy pens to write in my history books. It's just, oh, that's sort so of cool. gave it the aesthetic. <laughs> but it sort of carried on into my adult life. But any excuse to, to do something like that, it's always... I still like doing creative things. Like, even though sort of switched to academics, it's nice to have those creative outlets. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I think also creativity in academia, it's not, there's not really as a big a divide as people may necessarily think I think each dabbling in each or as Tim Ingold would say correspondence between different practices is a, definitely I think a healthy yeah. way of approaching whatever For project sure. you're doing because they inform each other in some way oh but, definitely well I'm glad that we've been able to provide creative outlets for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're yeah. definitely benefiting from this yeah oh, yeah 100%. well it was... <laughs> um so can you go a little bit deeper into your PhD research, Joe? I guess just more like what are the texts that you're looking at and okay, yeah. maybe talk about the philosophy of the material. Like I think a great way for our audience to grasp that would be um, the riddles that you're working on right now and how you're wor- like thinking through that. Okay, yeah, great. Um, well, the idea itself spawned from uh, my master's dissertation, which is looking at the Frank's casket. Um, which is a really famous object from North um, 8th century Northumbria, which is in the British Museum, sadly dwarfed by Sutton Hoo, actually. It's like, that's kind of the main attraction. But that in itself is actually a very riddling object. It's covered in runes. Um, some of them are quite ostensible as well. They're sort of like pseudo runes on there. The whole thing's like designed to tease you and things like that. But um, it's got different scenes different um, from different points of history as well. So you've got Wade and the Smith, uh, Remus and Romulus on one side, and then you've got the sort of, heavily debated panel which no one's quite sure but sometimes it's the Sigurd legend and then you've got um, Titus sacking um, Jerusalem as well on the other side but um, 
basically, to, to, sorry, went off on one there, but Great, continue. <laughs> um, we love it. the whole tool idea comes from the Wayland panel on the front cover. He's in the middle of using tongs and a hammer, and he's actually got a human head because in the story he gets captured by an evil king and he gets forced to make treasures on this island. And when he takes revenge, he sort of kills the king's sons and crafts objects from their skulls and inlays them with silver. Um, and on the cover, on the frontispiece of this Frank's casket, he's um, sort of in the middle of crafting. And the whole argument was kind of like, is Wayland making meaning? And like, what does it mean to start your journey of the object on the front inside sort of like a creative space, mm-hmm. essentially? And is that theme of making actually setting up for the rest of the panels, which include like helmets and swords, um, arrows, goblets, things like that, which are all obviously a product of a metal smith as well. So those themes of making sort of continue um, from the smithy on the front. And I did a really detailed chapter on Wayland's tools wow. and arguing like, did Anglo-Saxon audiences perceive tools to sort of possess a form of consciousness, mm-hmm. essentially, which coming back to what you were saying about riddles is really interesting because they often describe riddles as um, spilling their guts for their masters or I was, you know, brutally chopped down, which is, you know, the voice of a tree and things like that. So there's this whole um, anthropocentric way of looking at it. But in recent scholarship, people have started to argue that um, are the objects actually informing humans and do objects possess their own kind of uh, those ontologies, probably the technical word, or their own, again, consciousness outside, operating outside of human observation and do things possess their own Kind of, like, kind of like lives essentially um and do they have their own intentions which is something I've, i'm quite interested in in an anglo-saxon sense because um looking at the sort of evidence they definitely saw the object-centered world as kind of vibrant and alive and sort of part of like a greater fabric of riddles as well i mean the anglo-saxons believe the mind itself was a weapon that could be sharpened and kind of molded um from you know engaging with riddles and um, other forms of knowledge as well um, wow. but yeah so I'm looking specifically at the Exeter book riddle riddle 37 which is the, the blacksmith's bellows um, and that's that's a really interesting one. that's the really visceral one where it says you know I'm gonna spill my guts for my master and um, I give my breath but I'll never I'll always be kept alive it's on those kind of lines but uh, it's really interesting though from a material point of view because bellows were often made from goat skins and things like that. So you've got this whole kind of animal aspect in there as well, this kind of like uh, manipulation of an animal, which itself has been turned into a lung, which is you know kind of this sort of hybrid lung kind of Frankenstein's monster. Kind of. <laughs> you know, that way that's probably getting a bit too too far. That's but, so um, cool. Oh, it's great. Um, I actually just pulled up the riddle while you were talking, Joe, and yeah. it's short, so I'll I'll share it. Oh, please, um, yes. Also... <laughs> Because once you said sent it to our our group that we have with the fellow new PhDs, I was like, oh, this object is also speaking through the way that you narrate. Yeah, exactly, with the breathing and sort of inviting yeah. you to perform the function of. Yeah, like the exhaling and yeah. explosives. So this is this is the riddle. I saw the beast, his belly bulging hugely on his back. A bold man served him with strength. His stomach's filling flew out through his eye. He never dies when he must spill his guts for others. But a cure creeps back to his breast and breath revives. He fathers sons, the fathers of himself. Yeah, it leaves you on a very uh, enigmatic line at the end, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, 
I'm hoping that those plosives aren't going to be too poppy, but um, it's also just beautiful the way that it's written. Yeah, they're really, it's a really sort of unique glimpse into sort of the everydayness as well, like things like bellows, there's something like a plow is one of the solutions identified, like a key, things like that, like just really everyday objects, but suddenly given this like mysterious and sort of vibrant quality essentially. But um sort of going back to the research really um I suppose from doing the dissertation I just saw there was a big gap actually for the study of Anglo-Saxon tools or early medieval tools um outside of archaeology essentially they're often you know I mean there's an abundance of archaeology I mean I live in York so I've got Yorvik Viking Centre down the road and that's just <laughs> like you know every, everything was found there sort of for the sort of daily daily lives of people using tools and things like that but it always just seemed to me anyway that it's um kept in archaeology and not looked yeah. sort of theoretically like applying things like thing theory something introduced by bill brown um mm -hmm. sort of object ontology things like mm -hmm. that um so, so how are you going to go about your research as in like I don't know much about PhD, so forgive me, but like, how are you going to start? <laughs> Leave it <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to start? Like, what, how are you thinking right now? And how are you trying to form opinions and ideas and things? I suppose right now I'm kind of just bogged down in the theory aspects of the last okay. few months. I've just been reading about sort of the methods, the main methods I'm employing are new materialism, um, which is, is this thing of looking at objects as possessing their own kind of thing or the thingness of objects which is a phrase you often come across yeah. um and there's this sort of big distinction now between object and thing like an object is just sort of like a backdrop of everyday lives but as soon as a, an object decides to break or it doesn't work for us that's when it asserts its thingness uh, right. true, when something does break you kind of notice it more in a way you're kind of like yeah. why is it broken yeah. but in terms of research i've sort of split it up into four uh, case studies and that's very famous anglo-saxon poem the ruin and then of course the riddle which are the two literature examples um and the title of the thesis sort of is um essentially looking at the presence and absence of tool use in early medieval material mm -hmm. culture so those two represent the absence because obviously the riddle's hiding the solution mm -hmm. um and the, in the ruin it describes um sort of like uh you're walking around a ruined city and it describes the, the master builders have departed, the, the, you know, the walls are crumbling and things like this. I'm quite interested in this idea of the knowledge of the master builders, sort of the technical knowledge sort of disappearing with them and also the tools as well yeah. of, their, of their trade aren't able to extend the life of the architecture and able to keep a city going. So it's trying to sort of highlight that absence as like the important aspect that sort of keeps sort of society going in a material sense. And then, then I'm looking at the Holton Cross, which is a cross in Lancaster, which has a famous, it's got a really weathered depiction now of an early medieval smith, quite similar to the Frank's Casket, actually. And then, unfortunately, I am returning to the Frank's Casket for the last part, which I don't know if I'm looking forward to or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's split between literature and sculpture, basically. I'm going to try to sort of interweave those That's into so each other, cool. especially with the sculpture stuff. I'm quite interested in this idea of... Um, you know the marks of tool use being kind of like a neural signature in a way right. um it's kind of like the trace of the maker but also um i've been reading lots of things about how when you use tool use it sort of generates more neural maps in the mind in certain areas so could you also look at it as a moment when a craftsman was using a tool but also sort of expanding their own mind and that's like material culture then shaping you know the cognitive realm of a craftsperson essentially but I don't know how I'm going to work that in yeah that's quite a it's quite difficult really. that time we're only a month <laughs> yeah. and a half in yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh 
but with lockdowns and stuff, you know, I don't know about you, you know, you guys, but it's, I've had a lot of time to stew over it probably a bit more than I normally would have, which has kind of been an advantage, I guess. But. It can go one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a bit weird just starting it at home and just sort of like, well, might as well just get on with it then. <laughs> but I hope that explains it well enough. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's still, it's still in its very early sort of infancy at the moment. No, it's so interesting. I mean, obviously, I've never thought about these things. So it's really interesting to hear someone who's researching it. Um, well, again, it, it, it kind of comes from a sort of quite a personal point. I used to work right. in, a bronze, in a bronze casting foundry Ooh, um, in Liverpool. So how was that like? That was incredible. Yeah, it was a really cool experience. So we used to sort of fabricate artists' work in bronze. So it involved lots of like welding and uh, we used to mould the uh, sculptures as well and like cast them in resins and do all sorts of things like that. So it kind of stems from quite a you know a personal thing because I'm quite interested you know like tools you know um they're you know they're, they're hard work it's just you know mm-hmm. fetch the body and you know they're frustrating sometimes you don't know how to use one there's kind of like a fear of them you know and that's again yeah. they're sort of asserting that kind of yeah how they're informing the way we react with the environment yeah and, and you have like the bodily awareness now as well because I know in some of the conversations we've had Joe just because we are in the Sweet. same program um of how sometimes academics write about something, but they don't understand the experience or the bodily kind of workings of working with those tools. But you have that, like you have the awareness of things that don't come across in like literature. It's part of the kind of behind the scenes. Like I think once, Joe, you were saying that, was it in like the foundry or something that kind of sheen on the material as it like, cools or pours that yeah that's it when you do a weld and you get that sort of really trippy rainbow effect when you do a weld from the oils and the metal and things like that and mm-hmm. uh, but it stays with you though you know I mean it was impossible to get clean from that job so I imagine it was the same with early medieval maybe metal smiths who were getting soot and all sorts like you know blackened from the work and it's hard mm-hmm. to you know scrub that stuff away um so it's kind of staying with you in that sense as well you know kind of remnants or residue of a process yeah you're sort of becoming enmeshed with it or entangled exactly I was gonna say you're kind of becoming that exactly yeah and all the and all the bad backs and things like that you know there's all these things that you know Mm. maybe it's not necessarily aren't considered Mm -hmm. as much potentially so have you always been like a very um quote-unquote practical person and like um, able with like machines and tools and things or is there something that you kind of grew into I was, I would say so. Yeah, I think definitely like doing an undergraduate in fine art really sort of started to cement right. it. Um, so I did a lot of stuff with found objects, and that you know it can be quite difficult sometimes when you've just found you can't because you're not making it from scratch. You have to work with what you've got. Yeah. And then I sort of was in the workshop a lot there, but I think a lot of it really did come into practice from the foundry job. That was like a big kind of stepping stone, and um, I mean it's just just how long it takes as well. You know, months yeah. and months and months of work just to get one statue out but yeah and I've always loved making stuff as a little kid that's never really left um so yeah it was quite a surprising switch actually I thought ever I'd go into academics but Mm -hmm. I'm glad I did because you know creativity I'm not sure personally I'd want to do it as sort of a career or job it's it's kind of I feel like the passion from it is just the enjoyment of doing the project in fact when the project's over I'm almost kind of more sad about that because it's sort of the actual making of it is, is the fun part Totally. Me, You've got anyway. three years to think about it and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see how it exactly. goes. Um, I guess to kind of continue this conversation, but shift a little bit. Yeah. 
we wanted to hear some of your thoughts about The Dig because we know that Ooh. you've watched the film more than once, I believe. Yes. And you've already mentioned Sutton Who a few times. And since you have this kind of more material-oriented perspective in a way, really curious to just hear your thoughts, opinions, comments, etc. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with your last podcast as well. Podcast as well. Um, a lot of things you were saying um, from the feminist point of view as well, which I thought was interesting. I hadn't sort of thought about that, but when in context, you were right. Like, why did you know the female archaeologists have to be the clumsy one and things like that? So I feel like that was really cool and interesting. But um, I, I guess for me, because I'm just obsessed with things, it would have been. I think this was a lot of people's um issues I've spoken with as well was maybe not quite enough time spent with the objects themselves um but then mm -hmm. again that's probably not what the film was going for but um it would have been nice to have seen I mean especially in situ I mean we only look at these objects in museums now so that whole mm -hmm. place and space is completely disconnected but to actually see you know these things found in situ in a burial context connected to I mean, it's kind of arguing like, where does the entity end? Is that space, the, the objects connected to part of the entity? And once you remove that, what else have you removed from the yeah. object as well? Because, you know, how you look at things in a museum and how you'd look at something freshly discovered mm -hmm. in its sort of setting, it's because that, that, that place was chosen by those people to facilitate right. these incredible objects. And, uh, yeah, putting it's them like in a... Different type of curation, if you think of it, like you had the in the dig when it was being you know choosing the place and going through the process of making the ship and you know selecting the objects that were going Definitely. to be buried with this person that's a very kind of I mean it was like a spiritual curation right it had an intent and a purpose that was meant to transcend the earthly realm or whatnot however you kind of want to phrase that but then yes. in the museum context you have a bit more of this um sterile curation it's not, it doesn't have that intentionality behind it that's kind of a mystical one. It's more about factual telling the story and also just like what looks good where and what's going to be the most eye catching and the flow well, that's of it. The I mean, they have agendas, don't they, museums? So, yeah. I, mean, I always think it must be a, a bloody hard job to decide, especially with like manuscripts, like what page you're going to show and things like yeah, that. But um, that, yeah, yeah, certainly with Sutton Who, um, yeah, it would have been nice to spend longer with the treasures but also with the museum thing as well you know that it's technology that are kind of keeping those objects alive in a sense in there whereas you know it's, when you find these things you just realize it's just you know literally the earth has kept these things in a suspended state mm -hmm. of animation yeah, yeah I think my, my, the worst bit for me was the half covered belt buckle actually uh, in the film. yeah it's about a three second shot because obviously yeah. everyone knows the helmet that's kind of like the, the most famous one but I think mm -hmm. next to that is probably the belt buckle which yeah. is really cool because that thing actually like opens up as well like it mm -hmm. opens up and it, it kept like a relic or something inside it or something like that so there's all those like little features and the fact that the, sh the shoulder clasps are actually dysfunctional as well they don't work um yeah. and that's just that whole idea of sort of that Roman influence is coming in Anglo-Saxons quite sort of like maybe not consider themselves the heirs of the Roman sort of empire but certainly saw themselves perhaps in some regards especially material culture as an extension of mm -hmm. um aspects of roman things you can definitely see that yeah. in, in Sutton Hoo but then obviously you've got all that Germanic influence with the boars and all the zoomorphic mm -hmm. animals and things like that I mean those things themselves are riddles the helmet you know you've got 
zoomorphic creatures everywhere that aren't necessarily obvious at first. Like the, the eyebrows of wings, the body and the yeah, nose. Yeah, like the dragon the body. and the bird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and it sort of plays that thing of, you know, are these objects, you know, when you put them in museums, are they meant to be solved? Because right. that's the whole these sort of multivalency. From your own experience, when did you when did you first go into the British Museum and see these um, pieces? Do you know what? For my sins, it was not actually that long ago. Okay. <laughs> it, was only, it was only when I did did my masters. Actually, we did a oh. we did a, a module um, arts of the insular world, and they they took us to the British Museum to do so. Hey, but yeah, um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty bad, really, isn't it? But, no, um, no, no, no. I think being, I being brought up in Shropshire, I don't really. Uh, <laughs> I think that also kind of just speaks, though, in a way to what kind of a core bit of your just research or thinking is Joe that it's like the awareness of the objects and like you have to do the journey to the museum to see it but it's kind of like when you see it and the awareness of where those pieces came from and how they were crafted sometimes even if you see it later in life makes it more of an experiential or kind of like pilgrimage sort of thing um, I don't know. At least I think that's a what a way to think of it, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. Sure. I would. Uh, yeah, no, it was. Um, but all in all, though, I thought it was a good film. I can't, you know, Ralph Fiennes. I mean, it had a great cast over in general. Yeah, it did a, yeah. It and did a good job. We agree. Um, just uh, there were just the certain things, and yeah. one other um, kind of criticism. I think I mentioned it last week, but I'm curious about how you think of this, Joe. Is this is linked again to the lack of them look like looking and considering the objects but the craft of these objects I mean they're so intricate and so detailed and like the cloisonne work on this and they would kind of show how you know they they got these objects and were you know covered in dirt and potentially some sort of like not rust but like residue from just being in the earth for thousands of years or whatnot and then there's like brief snippets of like when they're moving the objects into the house, you know, for oh, and put them under the bed. And yeah, they're yeah. all pristine because they've been cleaned. But it's like we never really get to see just how extraordinary these objects are, even if they were professionally cleaned. But just like the interweaving, you know, detail and how small some of these are, and then the just like the working and craft of that. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. And- Again, that sort of interplay with environment as well. It would have been nice to see them sort of glinting in the sunlight, like catching and dazzling yeah. like they would have done, you know, yeah. when they were freshly sort of made, that kind of idea of, of attracting whoever's up in the yeah. sort of celestial realm. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, no, but it was nice to see a film that also centred around Anglo-Saxons for a change, albeit purely, archeo- purely archaeology, but... Um, there's just a lot of Viking things, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there are. They're um, super hot right cool. now. Because also, I mean, like, hopefully this will make a huge, new, a, a whole new generation interested in, in this and in the events. I mean, I know f- from my own personal thing, I'll go back to the British Museum and actually go to the Sutton Hoo area. Because yeah. I think I've walked past it. But, you know, when you go to, into a museum and there's so much and you just... Oh, it's so overwhelming, the British Museum. And I haven't seen it yet, so this is definitely... Yeah, it's in our list, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a thing for me to want to do now. I mean, unfortunately, when I lived in London, half of that was during 
a pandemic lockdown. Uh, so things were not accessible. No. Um, but yeah, this is great. So let's pivot. <laughs> yes. And yes. talk about creations and I guess maybe a bit more kind of like, they're not ephemeral, but virtual objects in music, <laughs> oral yes. objects. Yes. <laughs> how did you come, like, how, how did that, how did you start that? <laughs> um, I guess it came out of a place of frustration, actually, because I do okay. I do play drums and banjo. Um, what? Just, oh. Yeah, yeah, just play yes. my, my banjo. My banjo's broken at the moment, unfortunately. So. <laughs> um, we would have asked you to play a little. I know, I would have. I'm des- desperate to play it. Um, oh, but yeah. So far. I know, I will, when, I, when I get it fixed. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if music shops are even, I doubt they're open at the moment, but yeah, it's something beyond my skills to repair, I'm afraid. She's an old banjo though, so I'm not, she's done well to get this far actually and not break. But um, no, basically it came from a place of um, struggling to get musicians together because they're quite fickle characters a lot of the time. <laughs> and in the end, I just thought, well, I'll just start making my own music. And I started doing that obviously in undergrad with all the dystopian sort of soundscapey homemade stuff. And then yeah. um, I've just, I just love, like I have a really nerdy taste in music. I just love fantasy music, like Jeremy Sold as the Skyrim soundtracks and uh, stuff on like Pillars of Eternity. Um, it's just like, I love game soundtracks, but I don't actually play games, but I just, <laughs> <laughs> um, anything like that. And I, I just sort of uh, thought, well, is there any good sort of like medieval software out there to start playing around on my computer? And then there was just this perfect, Thing called Era Two Medieval Legends, and I sort of delved in that. And my first album is very much an experiment with that software, really. So, I, yeah, but, let's <laughs> but plug it, you really. in. Yeah, I've always, about it. <laughs> that's it. But I've always like liked that kind of music, and I never thought I'd sort of really be able to, to make that kind of music myself. So it's been quite nice to sort of venture into a sort of compositional, like really thinking about each note and mm-hmm. how it progresses and thinking about a narrative which has definitely been the case with this later album legends of elderly because that's um, releasing today released today Ooh. yeah released at what time is it now 10 minutes the youtube i know um but certainly yeah um so the first album which was called songs from the earthly kingdom that was <laughs> that was a very sort of getting used to the software kind of vibe mm-hmm. it's kind of like an ambient medievally neo-folk vibe to it but this new one it's been uh, based off one of my favourite books, actually. So that's been fun. So it's been like a sort of musical response to some of the chapters. So in, oh. in essence, it's kind of like a soundtrack to a book, really. Which in itself, is quite strange. Nice. Is so yeah, cool. great. Um, and yeah, so Joe, before we like recorded today, sent us a link to the the album. And so I've given it a listen twice. Definitely. Like the first uh-huh. person to listen at all, so thank you for so that. So privileged. Um, <laughs> and the first time I was, I was telling you, the first time I listened, I just kind of was listening. I was making coffee. I wasn't necessarily like listening, actively listening. Yeah. And there were a few songs that stood out just because they have the aesthetic of things that I personally, you know, enjoy. Oh yeah, really of course. That's strings or whatnot. But then the second time. I was trying to pay a little bit more attention because I don't know the legend and we will ask you about that in a yeah. second, Joe. Um, <laughs> but I like I know nothing about this legend. I Neither do I. I just think. know that it's in England and it's called The Legend of Elderly Edge. That's and it. That's, that's literally <laughs> it. And um, so it's been really interesting and I'll be curious to listen again now that I'll know the story. But I was telling you, Joe, I was like, oh, I can kind of hear 
a slight like narrative arc in this music yeah. and that there are points where I'm like, oh, this kind of sounds like a confrontation, like the penultimate song, the headless cross. Oh yeah. That's like, like the, the final showdown, if you like. And it sounds like, like that, but it's like also fucking awesome. It's like intense oh, strings. And, you know, I'm glad you like that one. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the one before that, the wood of Radnor, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that properly. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely how uh, I've been pronouncing it. <laughs> but I was telling you that there's like this one part where I don't know what instrument it is, but it's kind of like a, a tinking sound or a tinkling sound. And it, yeah, there's lots of, um, there's a music box I use quite a lot, um, which is cool, which is nice. And then Glockenspiel as well. I'm a big, I like a Glockenspiel. So I, it might sorry, be, I'm ignorant. What's a music box? A music box is kind of like, um, you know, like the little things you turn, like those little, oh, you can get sorry, them in like, you mean that, sort of, okay. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, like, yeah, okay, like a little okay. dude. <laughs> I thought it was something like, I was, I was just like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> no, 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 it's, no, it's, oh, um, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's called Hannah Peel's Music Box. And it's called, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, there's loads of good stuff like that out there. And, and so. do you, like, do you record each instrument, like, one at a time, or, like, so, how do you do yeah, it? Yeah, so, basically, when you're sort of making it, you've got, loads of tracks so each track's composed of about between 50 and 60 separate elements essentially so you've got like cellos strings sort of like your core stuff and then you've got your nice floaty sort of bells and things like that but I, I really like sort of throwing subtle synths in there as well just for like that ambience stuff you the thing with music weirdly is it's almost the things that you don't hear it's kind of like cooking a meal that like you've got sort of like your main ingredients but those little bits of seasoning that mm-hmm. If it wasn't there, you you probably you probably would notice, but equally it's subtle. It's kind of but yeah, it's and also space in music's really important. I'm a big I'm a big advocate for the for the dramatic pause Ooh. in a song. Because that I feel like that's weirdly when silence is when you're more when you're most drawn in. Right. That, like, that anticipation of when's yeah. it what's yeah. gonna kick in next kind of actually brings you more into the song weirdly. I think yeah. I think it was famous composed like Beethoven almost one of the big famous composers said it's also the, the silence in between mm-hmm. yeah I actually I actually have found that like when I'm doing something else and I'm listening to a song if it suddenly stops I get like I stop and I'm like what's happening I'm so confused yeah. and then when it starts back up I'm like oh okay so it's interesting because <laughs> like it you know even when you're doing something else that you can definitely feel that the power of the pause exactly yeah drawing you in yeah it's a bit of a paradox really but it's definitely definitely works yeah. <laughs> um so joe tell us about what what is the legend of elderly yeah. i want to um, know now I, I haven't listened to this yet so it'll be interesting to see i mean how that informs my listening if that makes sense it's not really um as a big a legend as you might think it's quite i mean it wasn't sort of written down until the 1800s and you know various philanthropists are collecting you know, folk tales and stuff. But in, in a nutshell, it's basically just there's a famous cave in Alderley Edge. And in that cave, there is believed to sleep sort of hundreds of Arthurian knights that are kind of waiting to be reawoken, um, sort of when the end of the world sort of cometh, if you like. <laughs> and there's there's a wizard who's put a spell on these sleeping knights so they basically can stay in a suspended state of sleep and not kind of wither away. And the Victorians identified this legend as an Arthurian legend okay. um, and the wizard being Merlin. Um, mm-hmm. But in its most famous, the legend was taken by the author of the book from the album Legends of Alderley, Alan Garner, who really kind of pushed the legend of Alderley as a narrative and expanded it and sort of brought in old Norse elements and 
Celtic elements to kind of flush it out, mm-hmm. if you like. So I feel like Alan Garner's version of The Legend of Alderley is probably more famous than the actual Legend of Alderley, which actually in itself is quite, yeah, it's not, it's not sort of like a big epically sort of strung out narrative. It's literally just this case of these sleeping warriors in a cave that are waiting to be reawoken for this kind of sort of unknown purpose I guess it's kind of it's got it's kind of similar to Ragnarok in a way that kind of waiting for Mm -hmm. the sort of big end to occur and then they'll wake up and have this kind of final showdown so then Um, with your music like what you said earlier it was like a response rather than a retelling in a way or kind of a yeah, like a kind of um, a sort of, yeah, like a sort of soundtrack to particular chapters, like the most sort of, I'd say sort of like the biggest, I mean, to do every single chapter would have just been insane. So <laughs> <laughs> I sort of had to just to just pick which ones were the most. So for example, the second track, High Moss Redmondhay, in the story, that's because it's based around two children who basically go on this like mad adventure in Alderley Edge and uncover all these like... Um, yeah, uh, sort of secret goings on between like a dark lord and there's like a Morrigan, which is based off Celtic mythology. He's like a witch and Cadellin, who's kind of like Merlin, sort of leads them on this quest. But then the sort of the main emphasis is on these sleeping warriors as well, which will be reawoken <laughs> one day. Um, and, and, and so uh, when you were choosing like the moments that you were going to um, transform into music, like did you choose moments that you thought were most poignant to the story or? The ones did, that had the most like musical yeah. atmosphere. I mean, it definitely starts. Some of them were definite. Like High Moss Redmondhay, the second track is when the children arrive at the farm they're staying at in the book. So I'm kind of trying to capture quite like a whimsical, explorey kind of vibe for that. But weirdly, sometimes you just write a track and then you realise that that's the chapter will fit that. So it kind of goes mm-hmm. the other way around. Sometimes I just wouldn't think about what this song necessarily was going to become. I just kind of write it and see where it went. That I was like, oh, that'd be great for that. Um, but some tracks have been in the making for ages, like track four, The Fundendale, which is where the cave is in the book, where the sleeping warriors are. It's a really beautiful mm-hmm. chapter. It's like laden with like treasure and there's these armoured knights just like quietly sleeping and it's like sort of like the hum of snoring. It's like really atmospheric. Um, but that oh, one, dude, that, that so was... Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, it. That, <laughs> that that song was in the making for you know over two years ago I wrote the bare bones for that wow. um wow. but that was in between doing a master's degree so I, I will that's my that's my excuse for not for that finishing <laughs> it but yeah so some of the tracks are really I wrote them a long time ago but the thing is as sort of music technology develops you end up you know getting hold of a better violin plug-in or some better strings plug-in so you want to update it so things like that can play into sort of how quickly the process becomes so since these are like based off chapters if you were to get like the legends of elderly by alan gardner and want to kind of read along through, i yeah. guess would yeah. are these like chapter titles or how would one want to have the sound you're i'm gonna say yeah so the reading chapter, track accompany <laughs> most of the tight song titles are the, the actual chapter titles in the book as Great. well oh, okay. um, apart from the pro ball i mean there is a there is a prologue in the book. He does explain the legend of Alderley right at the beginning in okay. the book. So I thought that would make a good prologue. And then the last track, I made that one up, to be fair, the epilogue, because I thought it's got a prologue. It's going to have to have an epilogue. Like, what is that? It's a beautiful. Within the, 
name. Sorry, we're quickly. It's until those who dwell in dreams awaken. Yeah, so oh, I thought maybe epilogue. it sort of hints at the sleeper warrior is not fulfilling the purpose yet, but it sort of continues it and doesn't necessarily and, leave it closed. And do you think, it. like, how did you approach the prologue? Like, I kind of wanted, like, well, I hope I've captured this, but almost kind of like a sad epicness, like right. as if days of sort of glory have gone by, but then with that sort of glimmer of sort of hope at the end. There's not as many instruments in the prologue, actually. I kind of made that purposefully sort of less in a way, just to kind of, so as the sort of the um, the album develops, it gets sort of more elaborate as the sort of journey of, you know, the characters. So so the prologue's quite reduced, really, in many ways. But um, yeah, some of them are quite easy. Like the second track was, was easy to get because I knew it had to be like a whimsical kind of fun mm-hmm. song. Um, the edge that went through many transformations that started out completely different to how it is now a few songs got scrapped on the along the way that's always that always happens really yeah I mean at one point it was looking like it was going to be about 17 tracks the album but in the wow. end well I don't know it's, it's one of those things you want do you want just 12 really good ones that you're really happy with or do you want 17 a couple you weren't sure should have been included yeah. really right so, Joe, at the end of today's episode, we're going to feature one of the songs off the album. Thank and you. I, I am hoping I'm going to pronounce this <laughs> correctly. <laughs> it's track 10, Hi. which is Ankerid Golden Hand. Exactly. And if anyone who's read the Mabba, Mabba I'm going to pronounce this wrong now, the Mabinogian, which is well a Welsh mythological text. That's where Alan Garner got the name from as well. She's a character in that, so he's borrowing from there. So anyone who's a fan of Welsh mythology might pick up on that as well. And what's the like brief story or what occurs so that our audience, when they listen, can see if there's any... Ah, so in the book, Angharad Golden Goldenhands, uh, they meet you in a place called the Earl Delving, which is a song on the album as well. And that's mm-hmm. kind of this uh, realm within like a big catacomb, of, like caverns, but it's like this kind of serene, picturesque sort of oasis in the middle of a kind of sort of jagged, kind of rocky uh, sort of area. And uh, Angharad Goldenhand gives Susan um, one of the sort of uh, the most important objects, essentially, in the book, which is... Um, the Weird Stone of Brisingaman, which is the, the book by Alan Garner, um, or Firefrost, as it's referred to as well. So it's like this really sort of powerful jewel that allows Susan to kind of channel this, this power that helps in the fight against um, the Morrigan, which is the witch, and a character called Grimnir as well. And if anyone's who's familiar with Norse mythology, you'll know Grimnir is um, a guy's Odin takes when he, he goes to seek, um, uh, when he goes to visit a king and uh, when he's seeking hospitality and the king unwisely refuses but when he realizes it's odin he slips and falls on his own sword okay. i think grimnir grimnir just means hooded one actually so it's not but in the book he's really sinister he's horrible he kind of he's always around foul mist and he smells really bad and he kind of like creeps around and <laughs> odin is really creepy and like yeah doing he's always up to vicious <laughs> things yeah <laughs> um oh that's great i'm so excited and to kind of bring it back home to the modern medieval, you know, core. So you wrote our jingle. I did, I, yes. I think <laughs> this is the third version. The final one is your third rendition. Yeah, we'll have to make sure you guys are us. happy with, with the melodies. Oh, no, dude, we were happy from the first one. <laughs> but, oh, great. But in what you were saying earlier when you were talking about music and kind of like the layering and the spacing, I do think that this last one yeah, it's amazing. is the best of the three I yeah, mean we noticed... were jazz from the first one of course but I mean that's one... it there's, 
there's so much where you know you've got to write the thing and then you've got things like equalizing getting all your frequencies right which can be a pain if you've got if you're working with things like whistles and really high-end instruments like high frequency it can be so hard to get them sounding you know not harsh essentially right um, but uh yeah and there's like things like compression things you've got to take into account and all sorts of stuff but uh no it was really fun to uh to do though as i say before it was a bit of a challenge really like to, to make something so short but sort of capture the sort of you know the vibe of the podcast essentially oh, <laughs> i think you, you fucking slayed it i think that it's <laughs> like yeah no it's amazing <laughs> and oh, i thanks. think you said it's the first time that you've used loot or yeah, I haven't used those. There's a the one of the instruments is a you've got a Renaissance lute on there and a medieval lute, and I think I went for the medieval lute in the I end. Wouldn't know I wouldn't know, yeah, but <laughs> I mean to be honest, there's, there's not too much difference between them sound-wise on the software anyway. But uh, yeah, it's cool software though because it gives you a bit of information about the history of the instrument as well, really? so you can kind of learn as you go. <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell you. So if you wanted to make really historically accurate music, you could really you could look <laughs> at what, what century is actually from and. <laughs> oh, anachronism it's always a tool isn't it yeah, yeah. um <laughs> and it's also great because I didn't notice it really until you mentioned it Joe but at the end you know as it kind of starts to fade out it brings it becomes a bit more synthy and you're saying it's entering into the modern from the yeah, medieval modern I thought it was a nice and it's so cool <laughs> I think that that's just such a great example of like the subtleties in music and that layering and that spacing and yeah. you know, like build up and just like the craft the um all the work and attention to detail it's the jingle is fucking awesome love it <laughs> no Legend I'm glad. elderly is every I listen to it because <laughs> I know it's uh, it's the fun part of sitting back and seeing what happens now. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we didn't uh, mention, and I'm realizing this is actually quite important for your album, is you go by the name Trothgard. Yeah, that's right. Um, what is it? What does it mean? What? Why? Well, actually, fun, <laughs> funnily, funnily enough, I don't mind admitting that I kind of pinched out of a book as well. But I think it does it does come from Old English trove, which is kind of truth loyalty. And then guard, Old Norse, kind of street or gate. So essentially it kind of just means sort of realm of truth, realm of kind of justice, if you like, something like that. Um, but the name comes from a book by, uh, what's his name? Stephen Donaldson, that's it. And he wrote, a, he wrote an interesting series of fantasy novels called the uh, um, series called Thomas Covenant, or the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, I think. And it's about a guy who has leprosy. And he ends up in this sort of fantasy world where it's all about like healing and he can't believe he's there and he, he can't sort of sort of engage with it properly because he doesn't think it's real. And he ends up in a, in a world, in a sort of forest called Trothgard or Trovegard. And uh, yeah, it's kind of this beautiful, serene, kind of transient forest realm. And I came across it and I thought, oh, if I ever do a musical project that's medieval, I'd like to use that as a name. And yes, that's where it comes from, really. But it's nice because it's kind of like, it's sort of like location rather than a person with music. I quite like to sort of separate it from myself. Right. That makes sense. I quite like the idea of Trothgard being more of like a place rather than a person, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, I just wanted to make sure we tackled that because it is Legends of Elderly by Trothgard. So people yeah, are like, just in case. this isn't by Joe Burton, <laughs> but it has the same names. And right. that's like your social media handle, like your Instagram and everything as well. That's it, yeah. So, that's... Um, very important. <laughs> um, 
Ello, any like questions or thoughts? Yeah, or? so I've actually final question, um, which we ask all our guests. What is your favorite medieval fact? That's a very difficult question. There's there's many facts to be had, but I feel like since we're on the uh, the theme of Sutton Who, one fact I really like about the helmet. Is I think it's the left eye with the garnets that go around the eyes. One has been hasn't had the gold foil included in the background, so it doesn't glimmer like the other the other eye would have done you know in its heyday yeah. being more catching the sun and uh they think maybe that's to reference Woden or sort of Anglo-Saxon equivalent of Odin who sort of famously had his eye removed um to gain runic knowledge so it's quite interesting that the helmet the sort of the grim helm it's often referred to could also be a reference to that sort of giving up of knowledge and then the helmet itself being quite a riddling thing with all its zoomorphic creatures and the things you don't necessarily notice straight away and even in its degraded state it's kind of even more of a riddle now anyway so that's kind of mm-hmm. the thing asserting its thingness if you like choosing to degrade and not allowing us full mastery over its interpretation but I think certainly yeah that's one of my favorite facts because it's is it done on purpose was it a mistake or you yeah. can never quite tell with these things um, That's a good. great object. I feel like it's such a capstone of this conversation. Yeah, no, <laughs> like, it's amazing. Well, I thought that was okay for it relevant to the uh, to the dig. Yeah, <laughs> we want you to hold on so that you can trumpet out with us, Joe. But before we do that, where can we find your music or where you post things on social media? Um, so on YouTube, if you just type in Trofgard, Trofgard, that'll take you straight to the stuff no one else has used the name yet so that's quite handy um, but in, very but rare yeah very rare and luckily if you just type Trogard into into google it comes up straight away with the Bandcamp, youtubes um but for instagram Trogard music on youtube Trogard music as well um but yeah fa- fairly easy to get a hold of um I, i'm thinking of looking into getting things on spotify this time potentially so I'll keep you we definitely did that. it. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, I'll have to inquire of you guys how it works. Actually, so I'm not too sure how I'll to go have to about remember, it. So. But definitely, but yeah, it's super easy. <laughs> it's super easy to find. Fortunately, I picked a good name there because it's the first thing on Google. <laughs> if you type, yeah. if you type it in, which is handy. good choice. Great, and yes. it'll be in the show notes as <laughs> yeah. well. Um, but yes. sometimes people don't check show notes, so I wanted to make sure that got that. Yeah. Hello, why don't you start signing us off? All right. So if you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to some more, please know that you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, YouTube, and Amazon just by typing Modern Medieval Podcast. You can find us on social media if you want to interact with us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval. On Facebook, we've got both a group and a page. You just type Modern Medieval the Podcast. And finally, on yeah, email if you want to drop us a line by typing modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. Yes, and then we've got Twitter, final one, which is under the handle at medieval underscore modern. And get ready, because this week we will be blasting you away with all the promotions and exciting materials linking to Trothgard. Did you, Mr. Joe Burton? And... Yeah, thank you just so much, Joe, yeah, for honestly. everything, for agreeing to oh, come Oh, you're on. welcome. Thank you as well. This is it's been really fun. Yeah, oh, you, it's, like, lovely. It's, so, it's so interesting. I can't wait to have you back in like a while and you can tell us more about your research because I'm like, <laughs> oh, no, great. Yeah, now. Hopefully I'll be a bit better informed by that point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you sound Literally, yeah. much 
more informed than I currently do in my <laughs> moment. Oh no, but... but yeah, so Joe, at the end of episodes, you heard last week, we kind of just goofily trump it out, but it's a thing that we do. Will you please join us in our yes, trumpeting? I'm sure I can do that. That's fine. I'd, it'd be a shameful thing for a musician to refuse. <laughs> Great. So until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Mello. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Thank you.